excited to be with you today on Palm Sunday. We are sticking with 1 Samuel that's been in our series, which may be a little different for Palm Sunday. Usually they're pretty focused. But the beauty of the Lord is the narrative of Scripture has truths that like flow through the entire thing. So he is going to speak a word that is applicable to Palm Sunday through 1 Samuel. And um, we are going to listen. Uh, I'm opening with... Um, a sentence uh, that is a little bit of a downer. <laughs> For some reason, I like to start that way, because then we just crave the hope of Jesus to come in and fill the gaps. Uh, and it's, it's actually a couple slides ahead. Um, but it's, never did time seem more hopeless than when Samuel arose. Okay, so we have been going through Samuel. Today, we're going to land in chapter 4. I'm going to remind us, which is that graphic before this, I'm going to remind us where we've been and then talk about what we're going. And today I get to do a little bit of storytelling, which is um, exciting. Not my strong suit. I like to like give you facts and teach. Um, but to really understand what God is doing in these chapters, we need to hear the story of what happened and how it played out. So in chapters 1 and 2, um, we have Hannah who has pleaded to God to give her a son, we also hear the judgment that is coming upon Eli's family in that time. And then we see God's answer to Hannah in giving her a son. Chapter 3, uh, we, and I believe most of you got to land in chapter 3 last week. We encounter Samuel hearing the voice of the Lord for the first time, being called. He's dwelling, you know, his life has been dedicated to the Lord in the tabernacle. He's dwelling there. He hears it, and Eli, even though his eyes are dim and his ears are not hearing the Lord anymore, is able to say, Samuel, this is the Lord. What does he have to say? We then see Eli receive um, God's judgment upon him and his family, and that's where we left off in chapter 3. Chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. Major, major. Um, and we're going to flesh through all this, but let me just set the stage, give us kind of some grounding points as we go through the story. So, Ark is captured by the Philistines. I couldn't think of a better way to say this, so I just said, Chapter five: The Ark plays hot potato. Okay, so it's in the Philistine. It's what the Philistines. God keeps moving, and they do not know what to do with it because He is messing with their nation. And then in chapter 6, the ark is returned to the Israelites. And for us who are familiar with stories, this is the part of the story where we're at a high and we're supposed to celebrate. Um, but it doesn't end that way because in this story, we learn that sometimes we hold on to structures and things and systems where we think the presence of the Lord is mm. and where he's going to meet us, and he is not there. Mm. So my point today that I'm going to bring up a couple times is the power and purposes of God cannot be contained in man-made systems. <laughs> in other words, nobody puts God in a box. Mm. Um, and this reminded me, this is super cheesy, but I love this movie when I was growing up. It reminded me of um, Nobody Puts Baby in a Corner. So yes. I said, nobody puts God in a corner. Mm. Like, we cannot put God in our boxes. Amen. Come on, come on. 
Um, so I'm going to give you a little context, and we're going to jump into 1 Samuel 4. Samuel is rising up as this prophet. We are coming out of Judges. We are being given a prophet, and we are getting close to a kingdom with a king. But God is moving through raising up Samuel. And as we read, we already feel a tension. As I read, I felt this tension because God's judgment over the nation of Israel, they are living in the promised land, yet they are still experiencing um, judgment from God. And simultaneously, God is raising up a prophet and his purposes are pushing through. Because we have these failing systems of leadership that exist in the house of God and in the nation of Israel. They are no longer hearing from God. They are no longer honoring God. They are no longer teaching his people the ways of God. And so God says, my purposes are going to push through, and we are going to, I'm going to speak through someone. And sadly, in chapter 4, we see that the Israelites are looking at something else to usher in the presence of God. During the years that this story is taking place, some of the great empires that were big players in the past are kind of weak. So there are two nations that are hostile towards the Israelites, the Philistines and the Ammonites. Um, and they are strong. The Philistines, who we see in this story, are their strength comes from the fact that they are constantly growing due to people immigrating into their um, nation. And they have control over iron which basically means in battle they're number one. Like they have military strength and power and they are constantly growing. So this is what the Israelites know and are faced with and is one of the greatest threats to them as we explore this scripture. So a people living in a promised land, no longer being taught the ways of the Lord and a giant military threat coming up against them. So let's look at 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 10. <laughs> yeah, you missed that cue. <laughs> no, we saw it. Took a lot of work. <laughs> All right, let's read together. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the, ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the land of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout, and the ground shook. I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to continue just to tell you the story of what happened, um, so that we can dig in and start to understand what's going on here. 
So Philistines have defeated the Israelites. And they think that if they go and grab this physical representation of God's presence and bring it into their camp, that will be inviting God as their um, assistance. I could go into depth about the ark because it, it could have its own sermon. But today I want our understanding to be a few things. One, that it was the visible representation of the manifestation of God's presence dwelling among his people in the tabernacle. So it existed in the tabernacle, and it was a sign that God's presence was with his people. This was following Moses and the Ten Commandments. This was created to remind God's people, I am with you, my presence is with you. But it was a box. It was a box that had rules. It had a box that was to be honored. It it was representative and holy, and yet it was a box. It was not God himself. So when the Israelites in chapter 4 think, let's bring this box into our camp to invite the presence of God over this battle, we start to see them looking a whole lot like the Philistines. Okay, Because in chapter 4, later on, um, the Philistines hear the roar of, of their celebration over this box. And they become afraid. And they say, what is going on? They find out that they've invited the ark into their camp. Fear strikes into them. But then they say, okay, guess what that means? We just have to fight a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. And guess what happens? The Israelites are defeated again. Mm -hmm. The box Mm -hmm. did not come through because the presence of the Lord was not with the box in the Israelite camp. At the end of this, Um, It basically describes to us at the end of chapter 4 the defeat of the Israelites and then the Philistines take the box. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into their camp because in the pagan nations, gods were trotted out like trophies. They were trotted out for when I want something, I'm going to take this god off my shelf. I'm going to bring it into this situation and that god's going to come and meet me. So when they looked at the box, they were like, oh, let's take their god. We're going to take this box and we're going to put it in the temple of our God. Essentially saying like, haha, we beat you. Your God's sitting on the floor and our God's in a statue um, reigning over your God. I was talking to Corey and he said that one uh, person was talking about this and it was like rival schools like stealing the mascot of another school taking its head off and like putting it up in their school and like snapping a picture and saying we beat you we got your thing ha ha now when i step back and think about the fact that the ark of the covenant was supposed to hold the presence of like an almighty sovereign god that stresses me out a little bit for it to be treated that way but here's the deal The Israelite army and the Philistine army, you cannot tell the difference in this story in the way that they treat God. It's almost as if big G God should have been turned into little G God when they were referring to him because that's the way that they were treating him. So when the Philistines take the Ark of God, they assume its capture represented victory. But friends, in chapter 4... Five and six, 
God is not speaking, and God is not present. Samuel is not speaking to the Israelites and giving them wisdom. Even their failed leadership is not giving them wisdom from God. They are not present in this story. So it does not represent victory, and we know that to be true. Once the ark arrived into the Philistine camp, it was put in Dagon's temple. He was the national deity of the Philistines, and it symbolized his defeat. But we know better, right? We know, but we know that this is not um, defeat. So you can just go back to um, the First Samuel one through six slide. Um, the Lord symbolically shows His sovereignty over this empty god of the Philistines because they wake up and the Philistine statue has been knocked over. Right? So they wake up expecting to revel in celebration of the victory that they have had over Israel's God, and their statue has fallen over. And they're like, okay, no big deal. We'll put them back up. We're still winning. We still have the box. The box means that we win. The next day, they wake up. The statue has been knocked over. Its head and hands have been cut off, and they lay at the threshold of their temple. Now, that's super symbolic because in war, those things represented like you have been defeated. So the Philistines start to get a little bit anxious. And they're like, what are we supposed to do with this box? Clearly, <laughs> something's happening. We have angered this God. So they move it. And it mentions multiple times that they move it and the hand of the Lord was heavy. Because guess what? Regardless of the Israelites' mishandling of God's presence, God is still sovereign and powerful. And he is not going to allow the Philistines to mess with him because he ultimately has a victory. They move it. Their lands become infested with tumors, which could be leprosy. Um, they start to see similar plagues in Egypt. So we have tumors. We have rats infesting their land, devastating their land. Disgusting. <laughs> and so the Philistines realize, okay, the hand of the Lord is heavy. Maybe... If we seek the counsel of our religious leaders, we can figure out what to do with this box. <laughs> and they devise a plan to test if everything that's been happening, because sometimes we can see the hand of God heavy in a situation, and we want to say it's a fluke. So like, oh, let's test if this is actually God coming through for the Israelites. So in 1 Samuel 6, 5b, it says that, the religious leaders of the Philistines said, give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. <laughs> now, their view of giving glory to this God was to take care of him, like give him what he wants, like make him go away. He's still this little G God right. in this instance. But we have a Philistine religious leader saying, give glory to Israel's God. So in the midst of this messed up interpretation of what this box was and who God is, God is still getting glory. Amen. I just want to point that out. Amen. So they devised a test. They were going to return the ark. They're going to put it on a cart. And they're going to have two cows take this ark, lead it back into the Israelite um, homeland. Now, 
They knew a little bit of the Israelite faith, so they said, let's return it with a guilt offering. There's something about a guilt offering. We know that's supposed to be a spotless lamb, but they said, let's send golden tumors and golden mice with the ark to say, we're sorry, these weird things have been happening. If they are from you, like, we're sorry, like, stop messing with us. And they, what's really interesting is they wanted the cart to be prepared with two milk cows, which means they are two cows who have had calves. They are actively feeding their calves. And they've never been yoked, which means these cows have never been taught to walk straight. Okay? So they're like, this is a test. We are going to see if these cows, whose instinct is to go back to their young to take care of them, and to not know how to walk straight on a path, they say, if it goes back to the Israelite people, we know that the hand of God has been active, and this is how we are going to get it out of our camp. But maybe it was just circumstance, and we'll just let him wander back, and then we'll know the ark has no power. Like, we have defeated him. What do you think happened in this story? Those cows went straight back to Israel. Again, showing that these empty, the empty plans of the Israelites, the empty plans of the Philistines, when they come up against the sovereign God, his purpose is still pushed through. Wow, that's right. That's right. So again, I'm going to state my point, because I think sometimes we say it at the beginning and we don't say it again. The power and the purposes of God cannot be contained in man-made systems. So that is the story of 1 Samuel 4 through 6. I could have read all the passages and we would have been here much longer. I hope we understand what's going on here, what picture God is giving us. We are not hearing from God in this passage. So where was God and what was he doing? The Israelite camp looked no different than the Philistine camp. The way that the Philistines view their God and gods and took them off the shelf is exactly the way that the Israelite people viewed the ark. And I think sometimes we can dog on the Israelites because they should know better. I think this is actually a lie from the enemy that we tell ourselves if we've grown up in the church. Like, you should know better. But at this time in scripture, the God of Israel was still essentially a God of their fathers. Um, their religious leadership had not led them in the ways of the Lord. They had not led them in right worship of the Lord. And the Lord was carrying out judgment on that while simultaneously raising up Samuel to speak the truth of the Lord and prophesy the word of the Lord. And when I think about this idea of an Israelite nation who are supposed to be set apart by God, identifying the ark as where the presence of the Lord was because they essentially were not taught the ways of the Lord, so they started to mimic the ways of the world, the ways of the pagan nations around them. It's the only way that they knew to worship God. When I think about that, I think about growing up in the church and the ways that if we lean away from God's truth and God's word, if we are not steeped in it, 
we start to try and take things of the world and put God into them and say, well, God's going to deliver us if we do it this way. And I have an example that I want to walk us through. And I want to be very careful with doing it. Um, because it's real and it's recent. And all of us experienced it in a different way. Um, but I was talking with uh, Christine Skull about this sermon and um, what it looked like. And we were talking about how early in the week there was a really scary event that happened where many of our schools went on lockdown. And I think everyone in this room was in a different place at that time, and everyone in this room experienced a different emotional response to that instance. On that day, I found myself in a darkened room sitting with students at a high school, and, and I saw um, all of the responses. I saw the way of the world take hold through cell phones and information being passed amongst one another that was like stirring up fear. I just saw fear stirring up in all of us in that room. I felt fear stirring up in me in that room because in my attempt to get everyone to go sit down, I left my phone on the desk and all I had was my watch, which is not a nice Apple watch. So I only know when people are calling and messaging me, but I cannot do anything about it. Can't respond, can't answer. So I'm sitting there, everyone is processing these events in their own way. Fear is coming up in their own ways. I'm seeing my daughter's school come up on my watch. No idea what they're calling for or what they're saying. And I felt the fear come up in me. And I asked God, what does my fear look like in light of who you are Amen. in this moment? Because it should look different. You know, I had a student who was in the room who was just, I mean, scrolling and announcing just facts that we had no idea if they were true or not. That were I mean, I could feel it in my soul, what it was doing to me. And I, I put my hands on the ground and I started to pray over the room because I said, Lord, my fear has to look different in this moment than it does for these other people. How does my response look different? Because if I operated like the Israelites in this story, I would attempt to somehow manipulate God to bring him into that situation, not rightly acknowledging his presence already being where it needed to be and already speaking what it needed to speak. I would attempt to grasp maybe, and, and potentially, and I, I think I did this, honestly, manipulate the presence of God to calm my fears instead of seeking God and saying, God, who are you and where are you and who are you speaking to in this moment that I can cling to? Because I refuse to be like the Israelite army and try to bring you into my place and fit you into my box because it doesn't work that way. I need you to meet me in my fear and Give me revelation of you and where you are because my perception of what you intervening on this moment looks like might not be it. That's right. That's right. So I think that we, like the Israelites, oftentimes attempt to manipulate God into our situations and not acknowledge the God who he has always been 
the word that he has always spoken, and the ways that he has always showed up. And this brings us back to the idea of the manifest presence of God. I think Christine was maybe here preaching on it. I'm not sure. But one of the things that she pulled out was in Scripture, when God became manifest, more often than not, it was not to someone who asked for it, tried to manipulate it into existence, or in a way that it had become before. So when we acknowledge the presence of God, it can never be this is how I want you to do it, I'm going to put you in this box, and because I'm putting you in this box, you're going to operate in this way. We need to go back to his voice. And I don't know what that would have looked like for the Israelites, because Samuel's a boy who's just hearing from the Lord. But what would it have looked like for us to lean in and ask God to speak instead of assuming where his presence was? The old system, we learned this from Christine last week at Crestmont, the old system, which was Eli. So we got this like distinct picture. Eli, he's an old man. He's not leading the Israelites in the way of faith. His, his health is failing. His eyes are failing. He was not hearing from God. And then we had Samuel. He was young. He was just entering into understanding the presence of the Lord and just hearing him. The old system of faith had dim eyes and ears that did not hear. And that's where my question for us is where in our experience of the church, in our experience of the God, are we still attempting to hear and see him in in old and failing systems? Where are we attempting to encounter the presence of God where there are dim eyes and ears that no longer hear? Because scripture does not reveal a God that operates in the same way every time. It reveals a God that is uh, his character is unchanging, but the ways in which he breaks into this earth are new. His mercies are new every morning. His presence comes differently every way. I think of this, and I think of Asbury. I think of the way that the church tried to critique the revival in Asbury. So many people said, this is a Gen Z revival. This is beautiful. This is, this is young people learning to hear God for the first time. Young people being delivered from sin for the first time. And my Instagram feed was full of the church critiquing it and telling us what was wrong, why it wasn't a real revival, why it was too emotional. And I just remember feeling so icky about it. Because these old systems that did meet God. I am not denying the Lord has met God in these old systems, or the Lord has met us in these old systems. Like, my parents' encounter of Jesus is radically different from my encounter of Jesus, and that does not discount this old system. What it does is it requires us to say, are these eyes still seeing and are these ears still hearing? So I'm not discounting the way that God has come in these old systems, but we must go back to the word of the Lord and we must go back to him himself and say, are you still speaking in this way? Are you still working in this place? And if not, I surrender that to you. That is a box that I must unhinge from my heart and give to you. And that's scary because familiar things, especially in um, 
and what we go through on a day-to-day basis, I mean, that's security. We think security is doing it the way we always had. And God says, security is in my presence. All right, and so then we have this ark ordained by God and idolized by man, right? So we have this ark that the Lord set apart. God's, the man said, ooh, this is our little trophy. So where has God's presence met us powerfully before? Are we simply trying to recreate a scenario where God will show up again? Wow. When I think, when I typed that out, I immediately was brought back to this room right here. This room is a very special room to me. When my husband and I first moved here, we gathered here once a week, and this fact blew my mind. For eight years, once a week, we gathered in this place. And let me tell you, we met God, and it wasn't in this um, setting, it was like a missional community setting, okay? People were healed, people were sent out. I heard Jesus for the first time. I went from doubting that God showed up in radical ways because of my old system, to believing that God could show up and heal someone right in front of my eyes through my daughter laying her hand on somebody. You know, the Lord radically moved in this place. But we stopped meeting in this place in 2020 for, for, for different reasons. The lockdown, there have been multiple missional communities and faith expressions that have come out of the people who met in this place. I think at least six or seven missional communities has, have come from the people that gathered. Mission has come from this place, but the old system, in my weakness, I want to say, okay, let's all, all the same people, let's cook dinner, eat dinner, come in here, let's worship and pray, and let's meet God like we used to. But that is not what God is doing anymore. And my attempt to recreate that is an empty box. So I want to ask you guys today, as we think about this, what the Lord is asking you to surrender. What picture of, what real picture or memory of meeting God's presence exists in your heart and mind that he is saying, I am not there anymore. I am not doing it that way anymore. I am still God and you are still my child, but I need you to see that I have moved on. And I'm asking you to surrender this picture of my presence to you because I am over here with Samuel and I'm speaking a new word. What is he asking us to change and who is he asking us to listen to? Because the Lord is raising up Samuels all around us who are hearing from him, who are seeing his presence and following it. And some of the things that are holding us back are because God has always met us back here. And I'm afraid for God to meet me up here because it's uncomfortable and unfamiliar. So this is why it's so relevant on Palm Sunday. Because we must remove God from the box. We must lean in and ask him what he is calling us to. And I do not believe he is calling us back to anything but his word. Like, if we return to anything, it is his word and in his presence. But a system or a box is just not going to cut it anymore. So what is he calling us to? And what new thing is he using to usher in his kingdom? Because Jesus on that donkey was not it in their mind. That's right. That's right. 
Expected, yet he saved the entire world and rode in on a donkey. So I want us to um, sit with our boxes. Sit with your boxes, your context of who God is and how he operates. And I want you to ask, what are you asking me to set down? Does this box go at the foot of the cross so I can go to where you are speaking, to, so I can go to where you're present? Because I want to be with you, walking right up behind that donkey, ushering That's the right. kingdom of God. Oh.